Hey, what's up, my friends? Welcome to Rebellion Creates Fatherhood Field Notes podcast, where I interview incredible fathers gaining wisdom from their stories for you and I to grow in our craft. I'm your guide, Ned Shout, father to five fun kiddos currently ages 7 to 14, and husband to one rad wife, Sarah, working on our 17th year of marriage. So yeah, I am in the thick of it, the adventure of fatherhood. I'm working daily to rebel against the low expectations for fathers and create a world where fatherhood matters. You and I have the greatest opportunity to impact our world for good through the way we embrace our fatherhood role. I believe the role of the father is to serve, guide, provide, and protect and have fun in the messiness of it all. I'm really excited for today's guest, Father Longenecker. I was given a book by him several years ago, and I have underlined it more than any other book. He is a Catholic priest, a father to four, and a husband, which is quite unusual. I think he said there's only about 500 around the world Catholic priests that are fathers and husbands. So check out this incredible conversation around fatherhood. If you like it, make sure to share it. All right, welcome to Fatherhood Field Notes. I am very, very excited to be talking to Father Longenecker. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Good to talk to you. Oh, it's so good to talk to you. So how we were connected is a mentor of mine probably four years ago gave me a book that you had written called Listen, My Son. And as I was, I was telling you before we, uh, we started hitting record is uh, I've probably underlined this book more than any other book. Uh, it has shaped my view of fatherhood tremendously. So thank you for your work. And I'm excited to talk about this book with you. Well, um, as my wife would say, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good on theory. Uh, in other words, <laughs> don't assume that I've mastered all the things in that book that I thought were a good idea. But um, anyway, I did put them together there when my kids were little. And I hope it's, I'm glad it's done some, I'm glad it's been good for you. It's, yes, it's been incredible. So to help people get a little bit more understanding of you, I'd love for you to give us just a couple minute bio of you are a Catholic priest married with four kids. And so that right off the bat is, doesn't seem to be the typical situation. Yeah, it's really unusual. Um, I was brought up in, a, in an evangelical Protestant home in Pennsylvania um, with a really godly, uh, um, God-fearing um, family. Uh, went to church, you know, twice on Sundays and Wednesday nights and uh, really uh, found the Lord and, and uh, learned to love the Lord as a young, as a young child. Even, even at the age of five can remember accepting the Lord. And um, then I went to college and did a degree in speech and English uh, and then uh, got the English bug and went over to England to study uh, and to be a priest in the Church of England. And then there was a special provision that the Catholic Church put in place for men, married men who converted to the Catholic faith from Anglican, Episcopal, Lutheran, churches like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Pope would give us special permission to be ordained as Catholic priests, even though we have wives and children. So I was ordained in 2006 as a Catholic priest, um, and my kids at that age were, uh, at that time, were like eighth grade, sixth grade, fourth and second grade, something like that. They were still school-age kids. And um, so I'm one of probably, oh, we think there's about 500 men in my situation around the world. Wow. So not Unique. literally. Interesting. But when you look at the size of the Catholic Church, really not very many at all. Yeah. How many years have you been married? Um, I guess we've been married almost 30 years now. Yeah. Wow. And how are, old are your kids? They're now college age. Um, okay. The youngest is just, the youngest is just finishing college. Um, nice. So they're in their, all in their twenties. 
Okay. Okay. So this podcast is called Fatherhood Field Notes. And what we're going to do is we're going to open up some of your field notes and, and open up and discuss the book and St. Benedict and learn a little bit more about him. Now, the mantra behind it is rebel and create. And, and the idea with this is there's so many things that we could rebel against. You know, I believe that, that we are warriors, we are fighters, and that we are made to rebel, but not just for the sake of being destructive, but to then create something out of that. So what's something that you are rebelling against and what do you hope to create out of that, whether it be something someone might say small or, or large? <laughs> uh, you know, this is one of the reasons I, I, I'm so excited to still be a Christian is, uh, and uh, to be honest with you, to be a Catholic, because I, I sometimes joke and say, um, be, being a Catholic is one way that you can be subversive and part of the establishment at the same time. And um, because the Christian faith, someone has said, is only good news when it's subversive. Uh, you use the word rebel, I use the word re- subversive, because what we're doing constantly is subverting or undermining and rebelling against the worldly standards, the worldly mm. standards which believe that life is just about the pursuit of pleasure and prosperity and, um, you know, all the rest of the worldly things. So we're rebelling against that. But I, I guess, um, therefore, one of the things, one of the particular things I like to rebel against is bureaucracy. Um, the kind of weighty worldliness uh, of, a, of a world that's run by all these boring, safe people um, people who are running insurance companies and finance companies <laughs> and um, bureaucracies and and HR departments and all this. Everybody's trying to be so safe all the time, you know, right. and never limit their risk and all the rest of it. And that just drives me crazy because, um, I mean, I'm in my 60s now. I, I suppose I'm at a stage where I'm supposed to be boring. Uh, and I guess a lot of people do find me boring. But anyway, I... I <laughs> I, I just think that, you know, all that, let's play it safe, let's be careful, let's mm. be politically correct, all that is just really dull. And um, so I try to have a creative as, uh, approach to stuff. I love it. So good. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure you've been that way your whole life. I mean, it sounds like you, you've, been, you've been rebelling and, and chasing uh, creativity in, in all that you've done. It, and it's pretty interesting hearing your story, you know, to where you've landed and how you continue to, I mean, even your new book that you just put out, I mean, maybe make a mention about that. I mean, that's, that's a, in a sense, kind of rebelling against what a lot of um, even Christians want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, you mean Immortal Combat? Yeah. Mm-hmm. My book Immortal Combat came out this spring and it's really looking at the question of, um, what does it mean when we use these religious terms like Jesus died to save you from your sins or Jesus behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? I, I really think modern people who who may not have any religious background or very little background would hear these Christian phrases and say, you know, what what, what are you talking about? Right. You know, what does it mean? What do you mean that this this guy who was you know, executed as an insurrectionist 2000 years ago takes away the naughty things I've done? You know, help me with that. What, 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 what do you, or when you say his blood washes away your sin, what, what is that about? You know, that modern people say, what, are you talking about animal sacrifice and stuff? We don't do that anymore. We, uh, you know, we, we don't, we have iPhones and Netflix, you know, so what's this? And I, I sympathize with that. You know, what we use a lot of religious language in, in our churchy churchiness and, um, people who are outside are quite rightly come in and scratch their head and say, well, you know, what are you talking about? And we Catholics, you know, when you go to mass, um, we talk about sacrifice. The priest says, 
this sacrifice, this holy sacrifice, this victim, this immaculate victim. We use this ancient language of sacrifice. And um, so the book is basically trying to say, explain why Jesus died and what it really means uh, and how his death really does take away the sins of the world. So, yeah. And so, and I've um, dived into what it really means, what the sin of the world really is. Um, Yeah. So that's what it's, that's what we're trying to do, trying to kick things over a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. I like it. All right, so let's talk some fatherhood here. So, you know, um, I've been introduced to St. Benedict. I've been introduced to his rule, the book, and then was introduced to your book, which is a commentary on St. Benedict, uh, his, his rule, his, uh, the book, The Rule. So maybe, you know, from your perspective, give us just, you know, people who've never heard St. Benedict, give us a couple of minute um, summary on him, and then why did you want to write a book about his book, really speaking to fathers? Yeah, B- Benedict is um, at a very interesting time in history. He's right at the, at the cusp between the 5th and the 6th century. So he's born in 480 AD, uh, and he's at the end of the 5th century into the 6th century. And at this point, the whole Roman Empire was crumbling. Uh, the the, 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 the um, barbarians were invading from the north and from the east. And the great Roman Empire was just um, collapsing into anarchy, into um, crime, into lawlessness, uh, lust, corruption of all kinds. And Benedict uh, goes out into the country and he forms these little core communities of Christians um, living lives of simple lives of prayer and work and study uh, and he just goes and does what he can with what he has. He, he realizes that the city, the, the, the civilization is crumbling around him, and he builds these little core communities. And this speaks to our time, because I think a lot of people feel also that Western civilization, we're trying so hard to patch it up and keep it together, mm. but it, it seems to be pretty, uh, you know, like a Titanic has just hit the iceberg. And, um, you know, things are, are, are pretty rocky for a lot of people. So Benedict speaks to this, and... Uh, he these core, but this is the cool thing these core communities that he formed and i'm convinced that all he was just doing what he could with what he had where he was he he did not envision what would happen mm. these core communities then over the next thousand years become the uh, cornerstone for western civilization uh, and almost all the stuff we take for granted in the modern world um, traces its roots back to what the Benedictine monks did over a 500-year period. That's why he's called the patron of Europe. Benedict is called the patron of Europe. So stuff like um, music, musical notation, you know, you take it for granted that you can have a music written down with notes and the score and everything. That was started by the monks. The judicial systems, the university systems, the study of science, the study of law, the um, libraries and the classification of books. You, you go on and on and on of all this great stuff they did, but he was just, uh, he just did it from you know, from this, these simple communities that he started. Hmm. So unique. It's so amazing. And then we're still talking about it now. Yeah. So w- when did you decide that you wanted to write a commentary on this rule? So that's who Benedict was. So then he had kind of put his way of life into a small book called the rule. And that has been passed down and we've used that in, they've used that in monasteries to understand the, the way of the monk you decided to take that and write a commentary on it uh, for fathers to really, you know, are you saying that the father should live like a monk or the father should live like the head of a monastery, which would be an abbot, correct? Yeah, and the abbot, the word abbot comes from Abba, father, okay? We know this from, from the Gospels. Jesus calls his father Abba. 
uh, and Abba, Father, was the ancient word for Father, which with the Greek word for Father, which then goes back to um, the term Abbot, the uh, of an, who's the head of an abbey, a mon- which is another name for a Benedictine monastery. Well, I, I got into this because when I was studying at Oxford, um, a friend wrote and said, maybe I'd like to visit a Benedictine monastery. And remember, I'm coming from an evangelical American background, so right. mon- the Catholic monastery was like, whoa, I don't know about this. And um, but uh, again, I'm always trying something new. So I I, I went and uh, loved it and and loved this life of study and prayer and and work and simplicity. Um, and so I began to visit Benedictine monasteries. 1997, I did a hitchhiking pilgrimage and hitchhiked from England to Jerusalem uh, and stayed in monasteries all across France and Italy uh, and really got into the the Benedictine monastery life. Um, and then when I was married, uh, I realized that actually a lot of the stuff, um, the rules and the wisdom for living together in a monastery uh, helps to illuminate the role of the father in the, in the home. Mm, um, incredible. Yeah. Mm. So I, to, I applied Benedict's rules and ideas um, to, 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 the, to the home, which um, some people call the domestic church. Yeah, so I'd like to get into a few things. Like I told you, I've, I've underlined more in this book, but the way that you set this commentary up is that you broke down the rule into um, being able to read through it three times a year with, you know, a kind of a devotion to it that you take some of the rule, you put some of your notes onto it, and you can read it three times through the year, right? Yeah, I didn't break it down that way. In fact, the uh, if you go to a Benedictine monastery or convent, the monks and the nuns every day read a portion from the rule, uh, usually at supper time. And um, the, so the, the, the divisions into daily readings were given to me. They were part of the Benedictine tradition. So um, one of the, the cool things about it is that if you do actually read those, you're kind of joining in with the Benedictine life day by day because the mm-hmm. monks and the nuns are reading the same passage. And monks and nuns all over the world reading the same passage every day. Uh, and I just took those daily passages and then wrote a daily a commentary applying it to, to, to home life. Hmm. So I wrote down a few things that I would love to bring up and talk about with you. But before I bring up the things that, that I liked, when you think of the book, you know, you wrote this in, um, in the year 2000, correct? Sure. Yes. Or that's when it was, it was published. So you were not a uh, Catholic priest at the time. No, I was a Catholic layman then. Um, okay. And, okay. And I, I, we came into the Catholic Church in 1995, and then for 10 years, I was as when my kids were young, uh, younger, um, I was a Catholic layman, and uh, in, in England. And then uh, the the way opened up for me to return to the USA to be ordained as a Catholic priest in 2006. Okay. Yeah. So before I start asking my questions and digging in, when you think about the work that you did with this and, and, and really the last 20 years that it's been out there, is there a couple of things that you think, man, if every father needs to know this, this would be kind of a couple of the nuggets from the book. Is there anything that comes to mind? Well, uh, I, I, don't, I wrote the book 20 years ago, so I, I forget some of the stuff that's in it. Um, <laughs> and, but I think one of the main things that, um, that is important for fathers is, is to realize the difference in parenting that, that takes place once your kids reach puberty, reach their teenage mm. years. And that is that the father at that stage is uh, not telling them what to do, but guiding them on making the right choices for themselves and preparing them for life. Yeah. And this is parallels what happens in the monastery because um, Benedict says the monastery is a school for the Lord's service. And the monks are trained 
in the early stages of their formation in obedience. Uh, and it really is, and remember, some of these monks are coming in as, as schoolboys or, or very young men. So they're being trained in the discipline of obedience, almost in a military kind of obedience. But Benedict makes it clear that this is so that they can learn to respond to the Lord and grow into proper maturity and making the right choices for the right reasons um, for themselves. And so this is really uh, sort of reflects the role of the father as well for our kids. That once they get to those teenage years, um, we're able to step back and say, well, now um, I did my best for you. My job now for you is to walk with you and help you to make the right decisions. And, and most teenagers will really respond positively to that um, because they have an instinct that that's what they're supposed to be doing anyway. Um, I draw this also from my dad. My dad was a wonderful Christian father. And um, I can remember when I got my driver's license, for instance, he said, well, he said, you know, um, you got your driver's license. You're out there on your own now. He says, I, I can't really keep track of you and control you. You have to make the right choices and um, I'll pray for you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so that's, that's an important thing I would share. So that leads me to something I was going to ask a little bit, but I'm going to bring it up. And I think it goes in hand with, with um, how I'm going to raise my, my, my teen and, and kids who are in, in puberty, as well as how I view myself. So there's kind of A and B part to this. So on page 86, I'm going to read a piece of this to you. And, and uh, it says, furthermore, as Benedict observes, the humble man is often reduced to confusion. He knows how his inner life is a mass of contradictory emotions and motives. He knows how his faults sometimes seem like virtues and his virtues seem like selfishness. Unlike most of us who attempt to sort ourselves out, the humble man thanks God for the confusion and humiliation because it is a chance to trust him more. So the reason I bring it up and why this is such a powerful piece to me, one, I want to talk about it as a man, but first, to teach our kids that they don't have to have it all figured out, right? That, that you are, you showed them a way and then you're sending them off and they are going to take what they learned from you, but they're also going to go live a life where they're constantly learning. And, and I think our world just wants to have the answer all the time, you know, especially with my phone in my hand. So I, I just love this because it's okay not to have all the answers. So maybe you can give your opinion on this piece. Yeah, I'm 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 really big on the idea that the spiritual life is a journey, uh, and you're mm. you're you're out there, and you give your kids a map, uh, but you say, "Go on, you go on the journey now," and and mm-hmm. and you're going to make some wrong turnings, you're going to get confused, you're going to get mixed up, um, and that's okay. That that I mean, a lot of lo- the best learning is ver- actually trial and error. Um, we we have a saying in our home: uh, it's not a rejection, it's a direction. So you, you apply for jobs or you, you, you know, set, want to get a book proposal out there or you want to do something exciting and, and you get a kickback and someone says, no, it's not a rejection. It's a direction. So I like um, that a lot. Th- this, this kind of uh, uncertainty is, is there. And, and this uncertainty is there in all the Bible stories. All, all the great heroes of faith in the Bible um, are feeling their way forward and, and walking by faith, not by sight. And you're right. The, the worldly way is... Um, the thing we were talking about before with all the insurance people, everything organized, everything tidy, all the answers, all the insurance plans paid up, you know, everything, you know, buttoned up and, 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 and organized. 
And this pandemic we're in at the moment, for instance, is giving all of us a kick out of that and saying, hey, you, didn't, you, you thought you had everything under control? Guess what? You don't. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is causing a lot of stress for people. But hey, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the beautiful struggle. You know, that, that's, that's life. That's reality. And if we can prepare our kids for that, they will find that life's an adventure. And they will, chances are they'll go on and do great things with their life. Um, and and um, because they'll have that adventuresome spirit. Yeah, I really like that. I like it because our opportunity as parents to come alongside our kids, you know, and the, the other side of this section, that's what really brought it up for me is like, as a man, as a father, as a husband in my home, you know, I'm working to lead my wife and children, but I only know what I know, you know, and I do surround myself with, with um, great mentors and good reading and this, that, and the other. But this piece just spoke to me a lot because the humble man you know, wants to figure it all out, but that's not the truth. You know, the truth is that it's okay to have confusion and humiliation because it's, it's an opportunity for me to grow. So it just, it's almost like a freedom piece for me to go, not to, not to be able to just not do anything, but to embrace that I can go take action and trust that I'm being guided, I guess. Yeah. And one of the reasons that the the worldly way is to um, take care of everything, um, dot all the I's, cross all Mm. the P's, make everything just so. And it's because they don't have faith. If you don't believe that there's anybody out there other than yourself to take care of yourself, then you better take care of yourself. Mm. Okay. But if once you have faith and, and you have trust in the divine providence, you're able to take some risks. It's all there in the story of Peter walking on the waves, isn't it? Um, we want to stay safe in the boat and, and hunker down and make sure that we survive the storm. And Jesus says, hey, you know, do something different. Step out of the boat uh, and, and walk waves. And you can undo that if he's on the waves already walking and inviting you. But if you don't have any faith, if you don't have any, uh, any faith in God, if you don't have any trust in the divine providence, there, there is no way you're going to do that. Uh, all you can do is button up and and make sure everything's safe and secure and 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 absolutely watertight. Um, but that's not the way of adventure, and it's not the way of, right. of life. It's not. The, it's sure, surely not the way that anybody who's anything great done anything great in the world has lived. Um, and this is one of the reasons our, our society, I'm sorry, I'm getting off track here, you know, but no, this is one of the reasons good. our society, one of the reasons our society is so mediocre. Okay. Who is producing great art nowadays? Who's producing great music? Who's producing um, great novels? Who produ- who's producing great architecture? Who's producing um, life-changing sort of developments in, in, in science and, and in the arts and everything else? Not very many people um, because our, our society is mediocre because we want to be safe about everything. Nobody wants to take any risks. And um, you have to take, throw yourself out there if you're, if you're going to do something great whether it's in parenting, whether it's in the spiritual life, um, no matter what. And so this is one of the great attributes of faith, which our society is blind to. Hmm. So now let's flip that on this next piece I want to ask you, because it, it is taking a risk, <clears throat> but it's, so let me tell you. Okay. You say that a p- part of, um, the monk's life is they're giving up the search, right? They're coming to a community and they're giving up the search, now, for, I don't know, joy or happiness elsewhere, like always looking outside. So where I want to bring this to is it is a risk. If I want to be a man and marry a woman and have children and 
commit my life here. I'm giving up the search for adventure outside of this. But that is in itself a risk, right? So what do you think about that? Yeah, one of the, the Benedictine monks take three vows. The vows are uh, the vows of obedience, stability, and conversion of life. And you're talking about the middle vow, the vow of stability. And the vow of stability means basically God is not elsewhere. Happiness is not elsewhere. Peace is not elsewhere. Satisfaction is not elsewhere. If I can't find those things here, mm. uh, I'm not going to find them anywhere. Mm. Okay? And so the Benedictine monk takes us in, into really extreme um, radical commitment where he says, I am going to commit to this monastery in this geographical place and this community for life. I'm not going to go church shopping. I'm not going to go monastery shopping. I'm not going to go out and continual search for happiness somewhere. I'm going to find it right here. One of the desert fathers who were the first monks in the Christian church back in the um, fourth century um, says to his uh, monks, he says, go to your cell and your cell will teach you everything. In other words, an even more extreme example, um, stay put right here uh, and find God right here. Cause you won't, if you don't find him here, you won't find him anywhere. So that's the vow of stability. And it applies to our marriages and our family life. Um, you know, when you go into a monastery, you choose a particular monastery, just like you might choose a particular wife when you get married and make a lifetime commitment. But you don't choose the other monks who might join after you. Anybody might join that monastery. You, I mean, they do have a way of, you know, voting for, the, for whether they're going to accept somebody or not. But still, um, you, you, there's certain things beyond your choice. And when you're a parent, you, you can't choose your kids either. God gives them to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, if you have natural born children, the beautiful blend of you and your wife, um, but still, they're unique individuals that you didn't, you know, you didn't put them together yourself and devise them. So they don't get to choose you, and you don't get to choose them. And there's a beauty in that because that's that's who you've been given to work with, and that's where you will find your salvation and your happiness, even though it might be a great struggle for a lot of people. And our society again doesn't like that at all. You know, quickie divorce. As a pastor, I see so many tragic cases where, um, you know, something will go wrong in the marriage and and they immediately run for the exit door, you know, and I'm saying, oh, hang on. No, 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 no. Don't do this because, um, first of all, you're not a mature person yet. And if you you, um, jump out right now, you'll probably jump right into the same mistake again and marry a person just like you're getting away from. Don't go, I'll never do that again. No, you probably will. Um, I've seen it happen too often. And very often also when people are ready to go for the exit door, I want to say to them, look, I know I've been here before. I'm older than you. I've seen this before. You and your marriage are just at the turning point when you're you're both going to, if you stick with this, you're both going to move through this to a really new place in your marriage, which is going to be terrific, but they can't, they can't hear it. Um, and so, you know, this, there's all sorts of things which um, cut against this idea of stability in our, in our, in our lives. Also, the increased mobility in, and for jobs and places and whatever, we, we're, we're too quick to get up and move. I just love the statement, though. And I just think if us men could have that idea, you know, that if I, I'm not going to find happiness and joy anywhere else unless I can find it here. You know, if we had that mindset in our homes, 
our world would look different. I mean, the, the stability and, and the, the need we have for stability and leadership in our world, in our country right now, it starts in our homes. We all want to blame somebody else. But really, if, if we were to, for the next hundred years, have that be the one thing we focused on in our homes, guaranteed our nation will look different a hundred years from now. I know. And, and one of the big faults in American society is this, it's in, it's in the um, constitution or the declaration of independence, whatever it is, was the the right uh, for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now the pursuit of happiness is okay, but we assume that we must, it's a right to have happiness. Mm. And, and that it's, and because of that, we, we feel that it's something which is owed to us. Um, And therefore if we're unhappy, it must be somebody's fault, right? Because if we're owed happiness and we're not happy, it means somebody didn't give us our happiness. And the whole concept of modern marriage is in America is set up as a, a sacrament of self-fulfillment rather than a sacrament of self-sacrifice. And that's why so many people are unhappy in their marriages because their expectations were wrong to start with. But I think there's a difference too between like our, even our perception of what happy means. I mean, happy is almost this, do I feel happy right now? Am I feeling happy versus, I mean, I almost don't even like that. The pursuit of happiness, you know, I like joy because joy, I think embraces the idea of struggle a little bit more, you know? And I think that if we were to stick out, if we were to stick it out in our marriages and our relationships, this an overall feeling of fulfillment, which is ha- would lead me to be happy, I would have in my life, but too quickly, I'm just looking for the quick happy. You know, what would really be interesting um, is it would be to go out into the street with a microphone and just say to, you know, some random people, you know, what do you think will make you happy? Mm. What do you think makes you happy? And hear what their answers are. It would be really interesting because if you ponder it, and ask yourself, what will make me happy? Um, what is it? I mean, is it sex? Is it is it more stuff? Um, is it friendships? Uh, you know, it's it's difficult to find that. Uh, happiness is, is elusive, and I don't think people would be able to, a lot of people would not be able to answer that. What's interesting about this, though, is I think if you were to go out and ask everybody, you know, what's a time where you grew the most in your life or let's just use that as an example. They're going to go back and tell of a struggle that they had, right? Yeah. So they're going to tell of a struggle. Now, when you're in a struggle, you think it's the worst thing ever and I'm not happy and life is really hard. But if you make it through the struggle, that becomes like one of the greatest trophies of your life. And so for whatever reason, it seems as though like in the middle of the struggle, we don't enjoy it. And so we avoid it. But those are the things that grow us the most. And it seems as though progress and, and, and growth, not overly, but, but that's really what brings us a sense of joy. Like when I see my kids growing up and developing and I, and I'm celebrating, you know, my, my wife and I joke, okay, you've been married 30 years. I've been married 16. We say, Oh man, we were such kids when we were first got married, we hardly knew each other. And now you and your wife could probably say, remember when we celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary, we thought we knew everything, you know, it's, it's, it's fun because I'm in that place, but I hope to be at the 30 and the 50 and the 70, you know? Um, So it's just interesting because I do think that the struggle of family life, home life, and just the the messiness of life really can bring us a sense of joy that we all deep down want. Well, it can, but um, the thing about marriage is that, of course, 
this is the one thing in life which does depend on two people actually deciding to to go on this journey together. And mm. one of the biggest frustrations in in trying to help people who are in in, in uh, difficult marriages is when uh, one of the partners simply isn't on the same page, doesn't want to go in that journey because it's a journey of self um, actualization. It's it's a journey of finding who God has really created us to be, and if one of the partners does no time for that and doesn't want to do that, even if they're very nice people and then they're not horrible, um, it ain't going to work. It, right. You know, you really have to be committed to a person who's, who's going to be sharing that greater goal for, for, for each of you as individuals. Yeah, that's tough because, you know, sometimes we, I could easily fall and say, well, that divorce probably had a way out and maybe it did, but, both people have to want to put the work into it. Yeah, definitely. And and the, the biggest disasters are when you have one person who says, I really want to make this work. I, I don't want him to leave me. And he's basically saying, I'm done with this. Yeah. I'm out of here. Nothing you can do about it. And there is nothing they can do about it at that stage. Right. Right. So continuing on with stability, you say one of the greatest gifts that you can give your children is stability. Now we've been talking about it and, and we talk, we talk, have talked about stability kind of uh, humanity, but when you think about inside your home, creating stability for your children, what does that look like? Uh, I think, you know, children are like little plants and they, they, they need to put down deep roots and stability is a deep, are deep roots. And if they're pulled up too young, they're going to wither and die. Mm-hmm. And so that stability um, in the early years, I think it does have a, a practical application of trying not to move too frequently. Um, you know, you hear about these kids and they growing up, uh, sorry, adults who say, yeah, we moved 17 times in 18 years. You know, it was terrible. So I think geographically staying put as much as you can. And maybe sometimes even uh, for the guy to, or the, the main breadwinner, uh, whoever it is to say, look, I'm not going to take this promotion. It means moving across the country. Okay, but deeper than that is the reassurance uh, to say to our children in those tender moments, even when they're getting older, is just to say things like, you know what, I'm always here for you. No matter what, I am always here for you. Now, I used to say that to my kids, and I would say things like, sometimes daddy's going to go away. You know, I have to travel, but I'm always going to come back. Just stuff like that. I mean, it sounds really ordinary uh, and maybe a little bit sentimental, but kid, that what dad says is is really authoritative for little ones. And to be able to say that gives them a great sense of security. The other thing which I think gives a great sense of security is um, for them to see affection between mother and father. Mm. Uh, and it people say, oh, I, I really did a terrible thing. You know, I fought me and my husband fought in front of the children. I'll say, no, that doesn't matter. What matters is if they see you make up in front of the children. That way they learn that life has struggles and quarrels. They learn that people fight. They learn that there's friction uh, in relationships, but they also learn forgiveness and reconciliation. And therefore this is a a very important lesson of stability um, that it's okay if there's fights and quarrels within reason, of course. Um, right. 
but but there's but the most important thing is then for them to see that there's such a thing as reconciliation and forgiveness because then they're learning much deeper lessons about stability that you can make it work that you can forgive one another that you can have laugh at one another you can pick it up and keep going mm. Yeah, I think that is so critical. It's something that we have tried to to do in our own home, you know, within reason is to is to let the kids see that because I don't want them to one day, you know, be in a relationship and think, oh my goodness, my parents never, never argued because we always did it behind closed doors. And so they just never knew that life is actually messy. Yeah, I no, think it's the kids can see it. And if in the in the middle of a fight also if if they can see that um, maybe it gets really sort of heated and somebody throws something or slams a door or yells or whatever else, um, the kids will get upset, okay? And the kids will get sort of worried about it. And why are they worried? They're worried because it's this question of instability. They're mm. worried that they're worried that dad's going to walk out and leave for good. They're worried that they've heard about divorce. They've heard about parents breaking up. They've heard about these things in, in life, and that scares them. Um, and that's why it's important for uh, even before the reconciliation and, the, and them seeing you make up is, is uh, for one of the parents who's perhaps more calm to say to the kids, you know, we'll get through this, you know, we'll, we'll make it up. You wait and see, she's going to come back and give me a big hug in five minutes or whatever else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, that, that helps to build stability. So I think that we avoid conflict a lot. And so I think sometimes, especially men will become very passive. And so they won't have conflict in their marriage or in their home and they'll be passive, you know, and then that just leads to one day they just are like done. And so they leave because they never spoke up. So how do we embrace conflict? I mean, we've kind of talked about it in, in a roundabout way, but, but conflict is, is not a bad thing. Why, why have we made it a bad thing? And what are the, what are the monks? How do they deal with the conflict? Like how do yeah. they view conflict? In, in chapter four in Benedict's rule, we, he, he has a chapter called the tools of good works. And, and uh, there's one little phrase in there, which I love, which he says, um, do not something like, do not nurture deceit in your heart. And then a few lines later, he says, speak with your mouth, the truth that is in your heart. So um, that means two things. First of all, uh, we avoid conflict and we're carrying deceit in our heart because we're not really speaking the truth uh, and to be able to speak the truth early um, usually is the best way to avoid the conflict. The reason that, that it gets heated is because we have avoided the conflict. Okay. So for instance, Oh, let's take a, a silly sort of example. Um, you know, maybe your wife spends too much money on stupid stuff and you overlook it, and you overlook it, and over you overlook it, and then finally the credit card bill is way too high, and you blow your top and say, "What is this buying all this crap?" You know, and then there's a big explosion. <laughs> Much better early on to say, "You know, look, I'm worried about this." And the other thing from monastic life is they have a chapter meeting every week. Now the chapter is basically all the monks gathering together. So family powwows and family talks are are are, are not a bad idea. You know. Once a month, once a week. Okay, we're going to get, have a powwow. We're going to talk about stuff. Who wants, who wants to air any grievance? I like that question. So who wants to air any grievance? That's a good, that's a good opportunity to give them the space to say something. Because we've yeah. been doing family the, meetings. Sorry, one other detail about that it, from yeah. the rule is Benedict says that um, the younger monks should be obedient to the older monks. But he also says, 
but you should also always listen to the younger the youngest monk because it is through his voice that the lord will often speak so in a family meeting um you really are listening to the little ones too which is kind of sweet yeah yeah i mean they're it's easy when when your life feels so full because we fill our plate so full you know to discredit or to quiet them down possibly but their view of the world and their view of what's happening is shouldn't be neglected because it's very um, sincere and pure a lot of times, yeah. you know, because they're not having the same worries that we might be having. Um, ah, it's so good. So on that same kind of path then, so we talked about stability and it's a great, a very great gift to give to our kids. You talk about teaching our kids the value of commitment you know, which, which is similar to stability in a sense, but the value of commitment and then tie it into commitment and community come from the same root word. Yeah. With, it means to be with, um, that level of commitment is also really eroded in our modern society because we're so individualistic and we're always taught to seek our own path and, and to follow your own dream and whatever. But in fact, uh, God made us to be um, in in families. He made us to be in communities. And the church is a community. The home is a community. And these communities is where are, are where we find, will find our happiness. But it requires a commitment. You have to you have to get out of yourself and and pay attention to other people. It re- requires us to stop looking at our own happiness and at our own desires. But on the other side of that, that sense of fulfillment that we're all really searching for, we would find. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you ask older people, when, when were your happiest, um, what's that one saying where someone said, what, what you're uh, on his deathbed, what would you do different? And he sort of said, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd spend more time with my kids, um, which is, Sad, but 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 sweet, especially when they're young. They're 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 not young for very long, and it goes pretty fast. Yeah, and uh, you can have some really precious, nice, sweet times with them, and that's when you're at your happiest. Is when you're giving yourself, giving of yourself to them. Why do we tend to not do that? Because we're sinners, and we we're attracted <laughs> to the the stuff that's going to make us. Uh, you know, we're, we're attracted to the, to the, to the superficial, the sweet, the sweetness of the cotton candy, the superficial tr- um, pleasures. Uh, and we're, and it takes some effort to do something good in the world. And um, we're lazy. We're lazy. Yeah. It takes some effort to do something good in the world. I think a lot of times, and I'll say this for myself, like I got caught up so much in that that thing I wanted to do in the world was outside of my home and not realizing the enormous opportunity to do something great in the world can happen right inside of my house. Yeah. And remembering that um, what, what, what are the, what, what, what are the, what's the one thing that you're going to take into eternity with you? It's other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the other stuff is going to, you're not going to take with you. You're going to go out of this world naked as you came into this world. And the only other ones, things from this world that you're going to see on the other side are, are other people. Um, so why not invest in them? You know? Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and I think that sometimes even with that statement, we could start to think, oh, well, I need to be doing this, that, and the other with other people. And we can put our families on, on the back burner and not make them the priority. Right. So how old are your kids then? Uh, my oldest is 14. And then I have a 12-year-old, two 11-year-olds. They were a surprise. And uh, then a seven-year-old. Some twins. Twins, yep. And uh, we had a three-year-old and a four-month-old when we found out. Oh, a two-year-old and a four-month-old when we found out we were pregnant with twins. So yeah. it was quick. Well, that means you jumped from two to four real quick. Yeah, we had four under four. It was, uh, we call it the dark year. Don't remember much of it. So we thought, let's have another one <laughs> to remember having babies as being fun. Um, yeah. It's good. We love it. That's great. And um, the thing about uh, those, when, when they're the really little, I remember somebody saying to, to us, um, when you have two kids, you can still be adults and sort of just take them along with you. But once you reach three, it's sort of the, the, the way of the place of no return. You know, by then you can't be adults anymore. You're parents and, and, and they're, <laughs> they're taking up a lot of your time. And once you get past three, then somebody said on top of that, yeah, and once you get past four, you could just keep going and have 12 or 15 because, <laughs> because your life by then is a total wreck. You're totally penniless. And, you, you, you know, you're, you're in this so deep that it didn't, wouldn't really matter by then. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I would, I would have more kids. I love it. I would have more kids, you know, but I don't know. I don't know. At a certain point you go, you know, we're still hanging on to, I guess, a lifestyle, but how much does it matter? Just because I love, I love having the, the kids, you know, but one day, one day there will be grandkids. So maybe I just need to wait, wait for that. I'm not sure. We'll see. Yeah. And, and there's ways to be involved in, in, uh, in helping kids in the community and in the church, uh, mm-hmm. with, you know, uh, Sunday school and, and a youth group and stuff like that, where you can stay, stay still involved. We have a school in our parish, which is cool because I still can stay involved with the children that way. Nice. Nice. Very good. I right, well, two last questions, a couple last questions for you. You know, one of the, the, the keys that I thought was really important is so many of us men are searching for that job, the career, this, that, and the other. And you made a statement. It says a man who is fulfilled at home, is more productive out in the workplace. And I think we lose sight of that. And I just wanted to hear your kind of, you know, like you said, you wrote this 20 years ago, but, but now you've experienced talking to people and seeing people and, and how true do you find that? And why is that the case? Well, I think uh, something's been lost in our modern world, which my dad had. My dad was a Christian businessman. He had his own, sh- he had his own uh, men's clothing store. And then he had a, a chain of clothing stores because he ended up being pretty successful. But um, as a Christian businessman, he, people would say to him, uh, don't you feel guilty charging people so much money and making so much profit? And my dad would say, no, I, I don't feel guilty about that at all. He says, I'm not ripping anybody off. I, I don't charge them more than than anybody else does. But he says, I, I'm not, he says, I'm making this money for two reasons. He said to um support my wife and children and and to and to support the lord's work he used to give 15 percent of his income to the church you know and yeah. with a wife and five kids and so this gave him a motivation so that he he was able to say this is why i'm doing this business this is why i'm making money because it's all for a higher purpose and he really was very he lived very modestly he was he was a very modest and generous man and this, therefore, gives a deeper meaning to any kind of career that we have, any kind of um, 
desire to make money. Sometimes when I'm talking to young men in their 20s who are looking for, wondering to do with their wife, I'll say, look, either be a, if you're a Catholic, either be a priest and be celibate and give your life totally to that, or get married and, and make a lot of, but first get a career and make a lot of money so you can support your wife and children and have a good life. <laughs> and our society is not telling people that that's the reason why you want to make a lot of money. Um, right. When I say make a lot of money, I don't mean being so greedy that you have to pile it all up, but I'm saying not being ashamed of working hard and succeeding and having a, a, a successful business because it's not about the business. It's about, that's a means to an end. It's not right. an end in itself. Mm. So good. So as men are listening to this, what are some things that you would say that they could start doing to, to really embrace their role of fatherhood? Well, again, in St. Benedict's rule, uh, in that same chapter of um, uh, the tools of good works, he says, uh, one of the things that you should do is to prefer nothing to the love of Christ. So when you get your priorities right and you really put your faith first and you put Christ first, everything else falls in line. It's, it's miraculous and it's, and it's wonderful. Everything else falls in line. And, and you, if you really passionately put Christ first, then before long, your, your relationships your, with your family will sort out, your relationships with work will sort out, and you will be blessed. Um, you will be blessed in a, in a very rich way. And so I would say to any man, whatever stage he is in life, get your focus right. Get back and look at that as your main thing in life and everything else will take care of itself. Mm. And it sounds simplistic. It's not easy. It's one of those things which is, uh, which is simple, but not easy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. My last question for you, say 20 years from now, okay, your kids are all in their twenties now, but 20 years from now, you're standing out on the street, peering into the homes of your children. What is the legacy that you will see? You know, not the money like we talked about, but, but when you see them, maybe they're married with their kids. What is the characteristics and the things that you see that you know the day in, day out life that you lived is be the way that they're living, right? Is, is playing a role in that. You say, what do I hope that they see in me? What do you, no, what would... do you hope to see in them? What do you hope to see in your 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 kids' families, that you know that you established that by the way that you lived your life? I, I think I, I, would, I would love to see them in relationships with their spouses and their children, um, which are open-ended and allowing their children to actually make the right decisions and, and find this adventure of life in, in, in a positive way. Um, my my own situation was that I was brought up in this evangelical fundamentalist home and I, I went to England and became an Anglican priest. And for a lot of fundamentalist parents, they would have said, Oh, never no, talk to you again, you know, how do you dare you leave the family faith and so forth? My parents were like weren't like that at all. They, they I can remember them very clearly shaking their head and saying, We don't know what this Anglican thing is and, and why you feel called to go to England, but we we trust that you are following the Lord's leading and that you love him and you want to serve him and we'll pray for you and we love you. In other words, there was that sense of we've raised you. You're making the choices that you're making. Go for it. Uh, and and that's, that kind of granting the kids freedom is what God does to us. He, he gives us free will. He gives us choice. And he stands back and says, get on with it. I, I loved what you said. I think the freedom of life 
um, it makes life more of a journey. And I think that's a, a great position because you're really holding like your parents did. Your parents kind of didn't hold you tight, you know, and, and you want to do the same for your kids. And I think that's a great thing for people to, to realize is that God doesn't really hold us that tight either. It's not this restrictive life for those who aren't following the faith. You know, that isn't how it is, even though a lot of people seem to live that way. Right. And, and, and again, that goes back to the tendency we talked about, about, about at the very beginning, having to have everything organized, everything right, everything tied down, everything neat and tidy. That's our instinct. But um, that's not God's way. God is is much for freewheeling in His in His grace and freewheeling in His divine providence. Um, and in my life, I've I've learned and seen that even when you make wrong turnings, he's, he if your heart is right and you're putting nothing before the love of Christ, He will even use your sin to bring you home. So there's this great mystery of the divine providence where. Our free will completes his divine will if we if if we say every day thy will be done mm-hmm. and um there, there there's the, 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 this is there in the rule of Saint Benedict as well where he even though the rule is quite strict it's strict in order to grant freedom it's it's like anything great you learn to play um beautiful music by practicing the scales you know um, you, you you learn to be a great athlete by turning up at practice um and and then uh it, you get somewhere. Hmm. Yeah. Father Longenecker, this has been incredible. I mean, again, your book has influenced my life for the last uh, four years at least, and it will continue to do so. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Um, if people want to learn more about you, um, listen to, you know, I think you have a podcast and a blog. Where can people find that information? Well, one of the things I'm really interested in is, in is uh, myth and, and fantasy literature and stories and stuff. And I've just started a new YouTube channel called um, myths, monsters, and the mysteries. So they can go there and, and watch those if they like and go to my blog, DwightLongenecker.com. It's not just a blog, it's a website with podcasts and video material and various other stuff. So um, it'd be great to, to, to get in touch with some of your listeners. Yeah, and I'll just say definitely pick up the Listen, My Son, uh, your commentary on St. Benedict, um, because that's been an incredible piece for me. So thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the conversation and, and hope to connect with you again in the future. Great. Happy to talk again. Bye for now. Wow, that was so incredible to talk to Father Longenecker. How unique. And it was really cool to spend some time talking with a man that has really influenced my view of fatherhood. So check out Listen, My Son, the book. I think you'll really enjoy it. Hey, every Monday, I put out the Fatherhood Field Notes podcast interviewing great dads. If you're interested in something shorter, I put out on Friday, Craft of Fatherhood, which you can find in the same spot here at Rebel and Create. If you have a question about fatherhood, send it to me and I'd love to discuss it on there. Hey, my goal is to hit 100 reviews uh, on iTunes. So if you wouldn't mind taking a couple minutes to write a review, that helps spread the word that fatherhood matters. Thank you to all you dads out there listening to Rebel and Create's Fatherhood Field Notes podcast. What you guys do truly matters. Do not be like everybody else. Be yourself. That is who your kids, your spouse, and your community needs. This is your guide, Ned Shout. Together, let's rebel against the view that fatherhood has little impact and create lives engaged in mastering the craft of fatherhood. Look forward to talking to you next time. Mm-hmm.